So good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back from the lunch break. And I'm just going to take a brief moment to introduce myself. You heard a little bit about me earlier this morning from Dr. Landovitz, but I'm uh, Constance Benson. I'm a professor of medicine at University of California, San Diego. And uh, I think I've been co-chairing this conference for many years now. I can't remember exactly how long. I don't think it's the full 30, but... uh, but uh, my co-chair in prior years has been Ron Mitsuyasu, and now with Rafi, we've been working as a team for quite a while now. So thank you all for coming. So my duty this afternoon is to just highlight a couple of the instructions that you've seen here. I'm not going to reiterate these. You've been watching them kind of flash by. But just to point out, there are instructions for completing the evaluations and for claiming uh, nursing and pharmacy credits that you heard about this morning. So please proceed with that. And I'm going to go straight into our first speaker of the afternoon, who is going to be your esteemed uh, co-chair today, Dr. Rafi Landovitz. He is a professor of medicine at the UCLA Center for Clinical AIDS Research and Education. He's also the center co-director for CHIPS. I don't know what that acronym stands for, but maybe he can tell you. He's led a number of combination prevention intervention studies, projects using post-exposure and pre-exposure prophylaxis strategies for MSM and transgender women. He's part of leadership groups of the Division of AIDS-funded AIDS Clinical Trials Group Network, the HIV Prevention Trials Network and former Adolescent Trials Network and recently completed term as a chair of the Antiretroviral Strategies Scientific Committee. He is the principal investigator of multiple studies, most recently a two multi-site PrEP demonstration projects in Los Angeles and the phase two and phase three registrational trials for evaluating long-acting injectable cabotegravir for PrEP. He serves on the executive committee of the HIV Prevention Trials Network and in 2017 received the HIV Medicine Association HIV Research Award in in, uh, his research activities obviously focus on prevention of HIV. So welcome, Dr. Landovitz, and he's going to be talking to us about his favorite topic, pre-exposure prophylaxis. Rafi. Thank you, Dr. Benson, for that kind introduction. Um, You're probably all really sick of hearing me talk, so um, I promise after this I will not speak anymore. We're going to talk today about what an update, uh, what the updates are in in pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV prevention, and and I called this pills and beyond because we have some really great pill-based HIV prevention strategies, and now happily we're expanding the menu of HIV biomedical prevention tools to include some additional um, delivery mechanisms, including injectables as of December of last year. We'll come to that in a second. Um, Just to make, uh, so first of all, my disclosures, um, I'm on scientific advisory boards for Gilead and Merck, and I've also been a consultant to Cepheid. These are the learning objectives for today. And just to remind people about why this is still important, I think we're all aware of the U equals U paradigm, where people who are living with HIV, um, when on treatment undetectable, 
um, are non-infectious to their sexual partners. But still, despite these observations and scale up of HIV treatment, we're still having about 4,000 new HIV infections per day. So clearly, we need more. We're not going to be able to just treat our way out of this pandemic. So how did we get here to this concept of pre-exposure prophylaxis? For many of you, this is like too basic, but just to make sure that we're all on the same page, many of you are aware that hospital workers, this is where this began early on in the pandemic, when when you would get stuck with a needle from drawing blood um, uh, from someone who was either of unknown HIV status or known to be living with HIV, or you got a splash of blood or bloody body fluids there was um, uh, about a 0.3% chance, three in a thousand, of acquiring HIV from that occupational exposure. And what became clear from animal studies and then some sort of uh, uh, analogies made to prevention of mother-to-child transmission of HIV is that the use of anti-HIV medications could be employed after an exposure to abort an HIV infection in someone who was exposed, and it was time-sensitive. And it became clear from animal models that although um, the current guidelines are that you should consider giving somebody post-exposure prophylaxis up to 72 hours after such an exposure, the majority of the benefit was going to be seen within the first 24 hours. And there are some animal models that actually suggest within the first eight hours. So the concept is you want to minimize the time from whatever exposure you're having to the administration of anti-HIV agents to potentially prevent Um, the establishment of a durable new infection. So if you believe me that there is this relationship between exposure and dosing for the efficacy of HIV prevention, then what would be the best way to make sure that that interval between exposure and dosing was as small as possible? Watch for the animation. So if it's the medicines are actually in the system before the exposure takes place, then really there is zero time between the exposure and the dosing. And it was on that principle that pre-exposure prophylaxis was born. And a lot of people, myself included, when this was first being studied, said, this is stupid. You're going to give people who don't have HIV, HIV, anti-HIV medications that are costly, have side effects, could potentially select for resistant virus if it failed, Um, and um, are going to be extremely complicated to scale up and costly and could potentially divert resources away from HIV treatment initiatives. So I was very skeptical of this. And of course, the last laugh was had on me because this was shown to be a highly effective strategy for HIV prevention in combination with other initiatives. But that that was the the, the how we got here from for pre-exposure prophylaxis. The first medication to be studied was this fixed-dose combination of snofbeer disoproxyl fumarate and emtricitabine, right? Brand name, and I'm going to get like thrown a rotten tomato by Donna Truvada, now available as a generic, right? TDF, FTC. Um, This was studied first, and it was first studied as a daily medication. The first way we understood how to use this is you wanted to take it daily, um, much in the kind of paradigm with which we take HIV treatment medications. And I'll spare you a lot of the data and the initial studies that we've gone over sort of in in other sort of settings that I'm sure you're quite familiar with. Let's talk about what the potential is by risk population for daily oral TDF FTC for HIV prevention. Now, this is a little bit of uh, an overgeneralization as a schematic. The shape 
of the character that is partially filled in in each of these is meant to represent sex at birth for the risk population. I'll come back to that in a second about why that's not a perfect analogy in this case. But for men who have sex with men, we now have an understanding that if daily oral TDF-FTC is taken as prescribed, rectal protection against HIV acquisition is probably more than 99%. Okay, that's a fairly straightforward statement. But on the right side of the screen um, is a female figure, right? And we don't have as good data, but we've been able to model that if um, an individual born female takes um, daily oral TDF-FTC as prescribed, the, we, we, we estimate that the preventive efficacy, if taken perfectly, is about 94%. Now, it turns out that that is an estimate for vaginal protection. And of course, individuals born female can also have rectal intercourse, and we probably don't ask for and assess that often enough. And the protection against rectal acquisition would be expected to be 99%, the same way it would be for an MSM. So the difference in the efficacy potential for each of these has to do with the root of exposure. And the reason I mention this and harp on this is a lot of the differences that we're going to see and we're going to talk about between other prevention agents have to do with getting the right medication into the right place at the right time when there is an HIV exposure. Those are the parameters we need to think about when we think about HIV biomedical prevention. So once we sort of had established, and I'm sort of going a little bit fast here, that TDF, FTC works very well when taken as prescribed, we sort of realized that the people most affected by HIV were the same people who were being left behind at seeing the benefits of this first iteration of HIV biomedical pre-exposure prophylaxis. And we needed better options. We needed better options for vaginal protection. We needed more discrete options. So people who um, felt uh, or could potentially find stigma in taking a medication um, that could be misconstrued as something that would only be taken by people who already had HIV um, that might actually induce part, intimate partner violence or other stigmatizing um, uh, events of being seen carrying these medications, not to mention the complexity of having to remember to take a medication every day when there might be comorbid uh, conditions and uh, co-occurring sort of situations evolving, such as mental health and substance use disorders that prevent people from adhering to perfect daily medication adherence, or just other priorities other than taking a pill every day for subsistence, right? So that sort of pushed the field forward. And we sort of had then moved to PrEP 2.0 and then PrEP 3.0, and I'm sparing you the 2.0. This is 3.0. And there are some of these other delivery systems, and we'll talk about some of these in more detail today. Um, There's a vaginal ring that contains a non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor that isn't available in a tablet form for oral administration called depivirine that in placebo-controlled trials in the global south was about 30% protective against vaginal HIV acquisition. Those were two studies that demonstrated this. One was called Aspire. One was called the Ring Study. Um, But regardless, it's, it's a very interesting story because it's really opened up this notion that, well, let me ask you all this question. 
something that has 30% efficacy against HIV acquisition. Are we happy about that? Are we sad about that? Are we disappointed? Do we think that's good? Think about that. There's no audience response question for that. I think a lot of people were disappointed by that result. They wanted something that was more potent. But of course, the devil is always in the details, isn't it? And when used as prescribed, right, people didn't always leave the rings in as they were prescribed. You got efficacy somewhere more in the 50 to 60 percent range. Well, maybe that's more of a conversation. And then you have a larger question of, let's say that a vaginal ring for HIV prevention was more acceptable. So people were willing to use it. Then what's better, a pill that might be more effective if taken exactly as prescribed, but nobody wants it versus a ring that has lower perfect efficacy, but people actually will implement it. And I think we underestimate the power of giving people choice in figuring out what's going to work for them as a person and over the course of their sexual lifespan. It may not be the same modality that will work over the course of an entire sexual life, lifespan, right? Which is not necessarily a short, a, a short time. So the more choices we give people, the, more, the greater chance that there is going to be that we're going to find something that is acceptable to people at that moment in time. And the best HIV prevention or biomedical prevention option for them is the one that they are going to be able to use successfully. So the, the second set from the left here, Discover study, some of you may be familiar with this. It's um, uh, There's the sister of TDF-FTC, right? TAF-FTC, right? Made by the same company that originally made TDF-FTC, um, but has not yet become generic, that in the context of HIV treatment regimens, we have an understanding that it is safer from a bone and renal standpoint than was TDF-FTC. And the question has been asked, number one, does it work as well as a PrEP agent? And number two, do those same safety observations that were true in people living with HIV going to be true in a PrEP sort of situation? And we'll get into that a little bit later, but what I'll show you here is it worked essentially just as well as daily oral TDF-FTC for MSM and transgender women. We do not have any data for this product yet for vaginal exposures. The studies are in the field. We will have data. But as of right now, if somebody's only route of, a, of, of HIV exposure risk is vaginal exposure, we do not have the data to support TAF-FTC's use. And then on the right side uh, um, of the slide here are, of course, the injectable PrEP studies, and we'll be talking about those a lot more in just a moment, and I'm obviously biased in uh, thinking that that's a pretty cool thing. Okay, so I mentioned already that um, uh, the people who historically have been most affected by HIV were not the populations who were seeing benefits from the the first iteration, PrEP 1.0. And here's just some provocative data of population level reductions in HIV incidents that were accomplished when daily oral TDF FTC was made easily and at low cost or no cost available to people most at risk. You can see these incredible population level reductions in HIV incidents. This is the power of biomedical prevention. But the key point is, if you don't make it widely available, easily accessible, and reduce the barriers to accessing it, you're not going to be able to see these sorts of benefits. 
And of course, in the United States, where the greatest need for these sorts of interventions, but the least access is in the southeast of the United States. I don't think that's a surprise to anyone here. Um, a group at Emory developed this really beautiful metric called the prep to need ratio that estimates how many people should be on prep in a region and compares it to how many people actually are on prep in a region. And they created this beautiful color coded map where the darker red colors are the less um, salutary um, prep to need ratio areas. And I don't think it's a surprise to any of us to see where um, those regions are located and where we need to be focusing our efforts to make prep more available and more accessible. Um, PrEP uh, initiations are beginning to spread throughout the world with additional um, global regulatory approvals for TDF, FTC, for PrEP. You can get a sense here where that's concentrated, but what has really sort of struggled with us maximizing the benefit of this um, is um, a reticence of a lot of programmatic activities in resource-limited areas to be able to figure out how to integrate and scale up PrEP as part of um, ART treatment services and other prevention services. We need to figure out how to do this better and more seamlessly and not think of these things as actually competing with each other, but rather as two necessary components in order to uh, accomplish the end of the epidemic. Again, when you think in the United States about where this prep to need ratio is most disparate, you can see that not only is it disparate by region, but it's disparate across race and ethnicities. And I don't think this is a surprise to anyone. And you can see these enormous differences in, in prep use and prep to need ratio among individuals who self-identify as white, black, and Hispanic in the various regions. And we need to do better if we are really going to end this epidemic. So, with that context, I think it's important to remind you all as, as providers that the CDC made one really important and fundamental change in how they recommend we should be approaching PrEP with our patients. They removed any of this notion of risk score and trying to risk stratify people of we should be talking about PrEP with this person and not that, not that person, because that can all be very stigmatizing. Why are you singling me out to talk to you about PrEP? And I think this is really powerful language that really anybody who is sexually active as an adult and adolescent um, should be brought up the concept of pre-exposure prophylaxis. Now, that doesn't mean you should highly endorse that they go on it if after discussion with them, they don't have some of these other risk factors, including things like a bacterial STI or inconsistent condom use, things like that, that we more traditionally would have associated with classic risk factors. But to bring up the conversation and open it is now CDC's position that should be done for any sexually active adolescent or adult. So that is a very much a change in the paradigm with a goal of destigmatizing um, and not missing an opportunity to offer PrEP to someone who might benefit from it. There's a lot of confusion because of these yes vaginal for TDF, FTC, but no vaginal for TAF, FTC, and TDF, FTC for anyone, including people who inject drugs. And then what about this disco dosing, this on-demand dosing, right, which is um, a mechanism of taking TDF, FTC prep that isn't daily, right? There was a study that was done in France and Quebec called Ipergay, led by Jean-Michel Molina, right, where people who were able to plan, and these were gay men and transgender women, plan for sexual intercourse, say, on a Saturday, 
two to 24 hours before that planned sexual activity, they would take a double dose of TDF-FTC. 24 hours after that initial double dose, they would take a single dose of TDF-FTC in addition. And then 24 hours after that, they would take a third single dose of TDF-FTC and then stop. And the randomized controlled trials of TDF-FTC versus placebo taken in that context showed 86% reduction in incident HIV infection. So you can do that also, not with TAF-FTC and not for vaginal intercourse. So I find this table a little helpful. And I think guidelines are really moving towards this notion of something that would be helpful for providers where you have, let's say, a cisgender woman sitting in front of you, and these are the kinds of intercourse that she is reporting or the kinds of HIV risk she's reporting, which of these PrEP agents have data to support their use and which ones don't. So I think as we sort of look to the future, we can expect guidelines to address those clinical frameworks that this begins to bring up um, a little bit more because it's very easy to get lost in the weeds, isn't it? So I think having a table like that would be something that would be extremely helpful. Now, I mentioned DISCOVER, this trial of TAF-FTC versus TDF-FTC for um, uh, cisgender men and transgender women. And we said that the the HIV incidence was non-inferior between the two treatment arms, which, you know, for those of you who don't speak statistical jargon quite as much, a saying a product is non-inferior means it's not that much worse than. That's really sort of the, the translation of what non-inferior means. And so the question you always want to ask when someone tells you non-inferior is, well, what was the non-inferiority margin of that study? So by how much worse could a comparator product be and still be considered non-inferior? And that has to be defined before the study starts. And what I find really fascinating about the DISCOVER study is that pre-specified non-inferiority margin was 63%. So TAF-FTC could have been 63% worse than TDF-FTC and still be considered non-inferior. Now, that wasn't what happened. The point estimates were actually a little bit in favor of the TAF-FTC in this study, but I just found that sort of an interesting and sort of provocative observation that the trial would be designed that way. And the question that really still is not answered to this day is, are the safety advantages that are seen with TAF-FTC in the HIV treatment realm applicable in the PrEP space? Very sensitive markers of creatinine clearance and DEXA scans done on HIV uninfected individuals in this study seem to favor the TAF-FTC arm, but the clinical outcomes don't necessarily correlate with that. There were not an increased rate of discontinuations for kidney problems. There was not an increased rate of fractures. And something that's often lost in the discussion is TAF-FTC regimens in people for PrEP have some of the same concerns that they do in HIV treatment regimens. They're often associated with an increase in LDL cholesterol, and they seem to be associated with weight gain. And this is also true in the PrEP space. So in order to have a fully realized picture of the risks and benefits of each agent, I think it's important to consider all four of those, which is sort of a very interesting perspective. 
let's talk about this disco or on-demand dosing just for a second. Some people really like this. It's very congruent with their lifestyle. If they're able to plan, for example, that they're going to go out on a weekend and have planned sexual activity, um, it, then they don't have to be taking um, a medication otherwise. And that's very attractive to some people. Um, it's extremely popular in France, which is where sort of the original studies were done. And in the U.S., it's sort of gaining popularity. It sort of has a lot of popularity in New York and in San Francisco here in LA, it's sort of hit and miss. I, I get asked about it sometimes, but I, it's not the overwhelming way that people seem to take this. Um, the same team that did the original hypergay study that looked at the efficacy, they've done some follow-up work, a study called Prevenir, where they, they offered people either daily oral prep or this disco on demand dosing, and they let them switch between the two. And they looked at what the incidence rates were for HIV in both arms and people's sort of satisfaction with it. And it seemed like about half the people choose the daily option and half the people choose the on-demand option. And there wasn't that much cross-pollination of people going back and forth. But the rates of the HIV incidence rates were amazingly low in both arms. It was like 0.1%, 0.1 per hundred person years in both arms. And, you know, we're getting increasing experience with this. And it's really, really interesting. I think I was very skeptical at first that this notion of trying to be clever about timing of your dosing and when you were going to take it was going to be successful. But there are people for whom this is very what we call sexually congruent. It works for them. And it's certainly way better than no biomedical prevention. So if someone comes to me and says, I'd like to do that. I, it's certainly a reasonable thing to do, and hopefully we'll have data for some other agents. Remember, we don't know about this for TAF-FTC, and we do not recommend this um, for vaginal exposures. Um, okay, so let's move on now to injectable prep. Um, so uh, cabotegravir, right, we've talked about in our treatment discussions, cabotegravir and rilpivirine, right, as this injectable treatment regimen. So half of that regimen the integrase half, cabotegravir, studied for pre-exposure prophylaxis, right? And there were two studies that led to U.S. FDA approval in December of last year. They both had this, a similar study design. One called 083 was in cisgender men and transgender women, and one called 084 was in cisgender women in the global south. And they both had the same study design. They were high-risk individuals, HIV uninfected when they joined the study, they got a five-week oral lead-in of either cabotegravir or TDF-FTC, and it was a double-blind study, so people got an active product and a placebo product, but there was this five-week oral lead-in, and then they went on to this injectable phase where they either got injectable cabotegravir every eight weeks or daily oral TDF-FTC, and the, 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 the double-blindness continued. So some people were getting real injections and sham pills, and some people were getting sham injections and real pills, and nobody knew which was which. And, you know, um, punchline, uh, both studies were stopped early for superiority of the injectable cabotegravir product over daily oral TDF-FTC. Now, a lot of people get angry at me when I say it was superior. So please don't get angry at me. That's the correct statistical term. It was statistically superior. But the really important question is um, superior to what? 
That does not mean that if both products were taken exactly as prescribed, that the injectable product would clearly be superior to the daily oral product. What was superior in these studies was the injectable product, which you can give as a directly observed injection, and you know somebody took it, compared to how people took the pills when they were out of your sight. And the devil is in the details. And we know that particularly cisgender women, but a lot of populations of MSM and transgender women struggle with taking pills for all the reasons we've been discussing, right? And so for somebody who struggles taking pills, an injectable seems to cover those sex acts and protect against HIV better. The reason I emphasize this is because you'll hear cabotegravir is superior to TDF, FTC for PrEP. Fact, true. But does that mean you have a moral or ethical obligation to switch all of your PrEP patients to cabotegravir? No. The best PrEP product is the one that they are going to take, that they are going to be able to stick with, that they're going to be able to take consistently. If you have someone who just prefers an injection, great. If you have somebody who really struggles with pills, great. If you have somebody who does just fine with pills, there is absolutely no reason that you need to switch them to an injectable PrEP regimen. I will say, though, that given the struggles that we did have with finding potent biomedical HIV prevention strategies that work for cisgender women for any number of reasons, cabotegravir performs better in cisgender women than it does in individuals born male. Why is that? Remember I told you the right drug in the right place at the right time? So cabotegravir, it turns out, has the opposite tissue distribution properties of the components of, TD, uh, of a tenofovir and emtricitabine-based based PrEP. Those agents concentrate better in rectal tissue than they do in vaginal tissue, which probably leads to more forgiveness to non-adherence for rectal protection than vaginal protection. Cabotegravir is the opposite. It partitions double in cervicovaginal tissues than it does in rectal tissues. And so the reduction in HIV incidence that was seen in the women's trial of cabotegravir was 89% compared to the daily oral TDF um, FTC arm. And given the struggles that we've had in finding these potent agents for vaginal protection, that is tremendously exciting. Um, and now that they've had even more follow-up in the HPTN084 study, it seems like this really is an incredibly powerful shield against vaginal acquisition um, of HIV globally, and it's very acceptable. And what we're hearing is in a lot of parts of the world, an injectable medicine is the, considered the best medicine. And some people don't want to leave a clinic where they've sought medical care until they've received an injection of something, um, because that's sort of the, the, the culturally congruent concept. So I think that's a really powerful thing to keep in mind. Um, the, the laboratory monitoring of cabotegravir, however, is complicated. And I'm sure everyone has seen the guidelines that the CDC has put out, or if you've read the FDA package insert about cabotegravir, it obligates that you monitor for breakthrough HIV infection with a viral load assay, not just a regular antibody assay. And that has sort of thrown the world on its ear, number one, because that's not implementable in a lot of parts of the world, just it's just not. 
And here, it's a very expensive test. A lot of people don't have access to it in these prevention contexts. And people are wondering, is it necessary? And now, we're not going to have time to get into the nuts and bolts of why it's recommended. But, um, uh, you know, if people want to ask questions about it, I'm happy to get into it. But the long story short is a long-acting potent antiviral suppresses viral replication when there is failure of the PrEP agent which attenuates antigen circulation and antibody response to it. Most of our conventional HIV testing algorithms are antigen and antibody based. If you are attenuating those response at failure, you're going to reduce the sensitivity of those conventional assays. So fine, you find it earlier. Who cares? Well, if you break through an integrase inhibitor-based PrEP, are you then going to be resistant to other integrase inhibitors and might it compromise treatment options. So that's the why you would want to find a breakthrough infection on cabotegravir prep as early as possible. So the other thing to know is acute HIV infection that we're used to talking about, this sort of mononucleosis-like syndrome, which is symptomatic in about 70% of people, clinically silent if you break through a long-acting prep agent. We gave it a name. It's sort of goofy. Go with it. It's called Levi. Don't ask why. Um, long-acting early viral inhibition, um, it can be very difficult to um, identify and you need um, these sensitive viral load tests to identify it and you don't get these bursts of viremia that can cause symptoms. So this whole concept of what acute HIV looks like with long-acting PrEP agents is different and just keep that in mind. So implementation of TAB has been a huge challenge for PrEP, right? So um, coverage of various insurance agents, getting pharmacists to do this, figuring out um, how it's going to be billed, various institutions, as Dr. Courier mentioned, will or won't let you bring medicine filled at another pharmacy into a clinic for administration. There's all these complexities that we need to figure out if this is ever going to have legs. Figuring out new clinic workflows, super difficult. And I think providers are very anxious because, well, it's, it's statistically superior. So shouldn't I rep recommend it to everybody? And how fast do you get protection? And how durable is it? And if somebody does fail it, then what do I use for treatment? And there are all these questions that we've sort of become a little bit comfortable with, with the oral prep options that now have to be asked and people made comfortable with all over again with these injectable prep. And so I just want to emphasize to you all who may be struggling with this, there is no ethical or moral obligation to switch all of your people to injectable PrEP. Um, what is the time to onset of protection with it? We don't know. But the best answer I can give you is about 50% of people will be uh, uh, have a pharmacokinetic uh, suggestion of, um, of protection by two days after the first injection and 95% by a week. Um, and um, uh, what about the durability for individuals born male where it's being given every eight weeks? I wouldn't assume that it works for longer than nine to 10 weeks. And we don't really know for individuals born female, but it may be as long as 12 weeks or more. Um, and the breakthroughs we've sort of talked about a little bit. Um, I will very briefly, because we're out of time, um, just mention some things that Dr. Courier also mentioned. What's next? In PrEP, I, the dipivirine ring I mentioned is approved in Europe. It's not going to be approved here in the U.S. The U.S. FDA actually rejected 
or said they were going to reject the application. So it was withdrawn. We are still hopeful that there will be other rings that will last longer, like three months. Um, and also multi-purpose technology rings that might give you contraception as well as HIV and other STI prevention. Cabotegravir is also being developed further as a microneedle array patch, like a Band-Aid that could potentially inoculate it into the dermis. There's going to be a double concentrated formula, so smaller injections. And they're working on an implant that Dr. Courier also mentioned is in development for Eslatrevir. I think the most important thing I would note is just to reiterate what Dr. Courier said earlier, it was, is in month development as a monthly oral pill. It is currently on hold by the FDA for this concern of dropping lymphocyte counts, and we don't know what the future of this drug would be. I was originally really skeptical. I was like, a monthly pill, who would want that? And then a patient said to me, well, don't you give your dog flea medicine on the first day of every month, and you remember to do that just fine. And for me, that was an aha moment, because yes, I do remember to do that. And so maybe that would be something that would be really powerful for people, particularly who don't like injections. Um, and Dr. Courier mentioned Lena Capavir every six month injections. This is in phase three clinical trials across populations, and we're eagerly awaiting the data. Dr. Courier also mentioned antibodies. Similarly, we're looking at antibodies as these long-acting injectable means of prevention. Um, and so far, um, exciting pharmacokinetic results, but no clinical data that suggests we found the right combination yet. I'll stop there and thank you so much for your attention. So thank you very much. An excellent discussion about PrEP. We don't have a whole lot of time for questions and answers, Rafi, uh, but I will got a number of them here. I'll kind of stick them all into one question related to cabotegravir or PrEP. And there was an article in the Annals of Internal Medicine in which the author suggested that cabotegravir was not cost-effective given the current cost versus generic Truvada, checking viral load six times per year worsens this. Um, what to do with cabotegravir and injection drug users? Is oral prep more uh, effective? Kind of a little bit more of a tie-up of the cabotegravir data. Yeah, thank you. So um, I'll start with the easier questions first. So with, with regard to people who inject drugs, um, remember that um, better? No? Yes? Yes. No. Maybe. Okay. Um, so um, people who inject drugs also are sexual beings um, often. So the often injection drug use is not the only mechanism of exposure. So just because we don't have data yet in injection drug users, um, it's not a reason to say that it shouldn't be used in somebody who has a history of injection drug use. Um, there are um, animal models that suggest that parenteral exposures, so the analog of injection drug use, would be protected. That's not human data, but um, hopefully those studies are coming. So I would not not use it in somebody with um, a history of injection drug use. The cost efficacy issue is a tremendous bugaboo, right? Um, you know, it's priced at a way that currently that does not appear that it's going to be, um, that it, it, at least is currently used 
would be cost effective. But for a given individual, if they cannot or will not use an oral preparation, um, there are obviously other things that need to go into that decision tree other than pure cost. Um, and hopefully, um, you know, uh, Vive has licensed this out to the medicines patents pool, medicine patents pool globally, and that will create some generic competition that will hopefully bring the price down. Great. There's a few questions here about hepatitis B surface antigen and hepatitis B testing. And one has to do with the fact that some are reporting hepatitis B patients don't need to uh, stop or to have issue, don't have issues with testing for hepatitis B or don't need to treatment and can start and stop oral prep without issues with hepatitis B as long as their uh, levels are less than 100. And another question kind of in the same vein is um, the CDC recommendations for testing for hepatitis is uh, maybe somewhat different than what we had talked about. And also the CDC guidelines for recommending HIV RNA testing is every three months for oral prep. So how do you reconcile some of the hepatitis and viral load testing issues? Yeah, um, great questions. So the first thing I will say is, you know, TDF, FTC, and TAF, FTC, obviously both have activity against hepatitis B. So somebody with chronic active hepatitis B, you do need to be careful there, right? The concern is if people stop um, a tenofovir-containing PrEP regimen, could they have a risk for hepatitis B rebound and then fulminant hepatitis? That seems to be most often a concern in people who are cirrhotic. So there's there's an increasing safety database um, that you can start and stop um, without um, a fulminant hepatitis. It's an off-based PrEP regimen. However, you need to have an independent thought process about whether the hepatitis B condition by itself meets criteria for treatment. And if it does, and you need to use a tenofovir-based product anyway, then clearly that's the product that you should also use for PrEP. I think the other question that you're alluding to is um, that I sort of intentionally avoided um, is the CDC came out with um, with their change in guidelines and their recommendation that RNA testing be used to monitor for cabotegravir prep breakthrough, that it also be used for routine monitoring of tenofovir-based prep breakthrough. Um, I don't agree with this recommendation, and I always take a big deep breath and pause before I go and say, I don't agree with a CDC recommendation, but there, now I've said it. Um, uh, the, the CDC calls out HPTN 083 data in support of that recommendation. And um, being part of the team that generated that data, I believe they are misinterpreting that data. So I have not changed my clinical practice with regard to tenofovir-based prep monitoring. I still use an antigen antibody test for routine monitoring. And I think we're going to have to stop there. I know there were several other questions that people in the audience had. So maybe you can catch uh, Dr. Landovitz and during the break to finish answering your questions.